our voice, our future. Join us as we explore the real power of Youth Rising. Youth Rising. The Youth Rising podcast by NCS. Hello, I'm Muslim Ahmed and welcome back to Youth Rising by NCS. This is the podcast for young people by young people. And in this podcast, you're going to hear youth-driven stories from right across England about the issues that matter to young people right now. In today's episode, we've got two very special topics. We'll be looking into social diversity in football, especially concerning British Bangladeshis making it pro. And once we've had a look into that, for our second topic, we're going to be discussing loneliness and the effect that has on our mental health. Now, before we get started, I just want to remind you guys that this podcast is happening all thanks to NCS. NCS is a summer program for 16 to 17 year olds that helps turn all those no you can't into no, we can. Now, as I love to say, I'm a British Bangladeshi and football fanatic. This is why our first topic of diversity in footy especially hit home for me. I go crazy watching football, spending all my money on Sky Sports and tickets to games. And before I get slated, yes, yes, I do support Chelsea. I'm a London boy through and through. Yet despite me having a huge passion for football and it almost taking up my entire weekend every single week, I never once truly believed I could become a professional football player. I mean, it could be because I'm terrible, but that wasn't the case for my Bengali friends who were incredibly talented. I grew up watching some of my most skillful friends fail to see the chance of even being scouted let alone putting on an England shirt and playing for their country. Out of thousands of professional players, there's only 12 that are British Bangladeshi. So the question arises, why? Why is there such an underrepresentation in football? I spoke to Anil Javid, the inclusion manager at English Football League, to investigate this issue. Have a listen. Cool. So let's like rewind a little bit. You worked at, you're working right now at EFL. What were you doing prior to this? How did you get yourself into this role? How was that like? So I started off uh, actually as a, a football coach. Um, went to university, studied uh, sports, uh, did a sports degree, uh, and moved into a sports coaching role. Uh, that was the first as- aspiration I had. And then moved into a sports development role, working with a local council. Uh, spent a number of years developing social inclusion programmes, working within the community, uh, tackling kind of uh, underrepresentation as well as working in communities uh, which were uh, either deprived or obviously people were were um, from a background whereby they weren't accessing education or, or training or, or, or in work. So uh, spent quite a lot of time uh, working in that sector, then moved to a county sports partnership, working a bit more regionally, uh, again, developing some of the same programmes uh, and initiatives around uh, tackling sort of underrepresentation, but predominantly then start to focus on uh, neat young people. Um, and coincidentally, I was part of the original steering group of when the NCS programme was uh, first being talked about at government. So started doing that and then took a little bit of a career break, set up my own business, uh, focused a bit more back onto coaching. And then uh, also at the same time was uh, studied a law degree and then moved into into this job at the Football League, which presented as an opportunity. They were looking for a new role, development officer, around inclusion. The league had never had one uh, or had anybody before in that in that role. Uh, so, yeah, I took that role and been here ever since. So over the years, progressed from being kind of development 
officer and obviously now enclosure manager looking after the whole portfolio programs. I know you might be seen as like an inspiration to British agents because you're working on it from an institutional perspective. If I'm a British agent and I'm young and I want to get into either becoming a football player, becoming a inclusion manager, working as a scout, how, what pathway do I take as an individual having, obviously you've had that learning experience, you've done the hard work. How does someone that's from a minor, ethnic minority progress into that role and get themselves involved? I think for anyone who's, who's obviously wanted to get into football, certainly obviously from a British Asian point of view, it would be uh, first and foremost is obviously you have to start to build the relationships with, you know, the, the right organisations and and the right people. And again, depending on what, what pathway you, you're wanting to follow, whether it's a player or a scout or, or, or working kind of, you know, in, in in a role, let's say, behind the scenes as I do. It's really about obviously finding out about what that pathway looks like and then starting to make a plan. Um, and I, I'm a big believer of obviously having a plan, have a 10-year plan, five-year plan, whatever that might be, because it's okay saying, well, I want to become a player, but if you don't know how to, you're going to get there, if you don't have a plan of how you want to get there, you're not going to, you're just going to keep drifting around really. Um, Walking in, like in, in a circle. Yeah, you know, it's a bit like, uh, to use the analogy, you know, if you've got on a, you got on a plane and you're going to, you're going to fly to New York, if the pilot doesn't know how he's going to, or what path he's going to take to get there, you're just never going to get there. You're going to, probably do a couple of loop-de-loops and whatever else. So you almost need like a bit of a sat-nav to your life in terms of, you know, you need to have that plan in place. You need to know how am I going to get from A to B? What does that look like? And realistically, what I would say is go out there and start speaking to people, Mm. start making those connections. Um, What's your like, your relationship with football? Who do you support? (laughs) So this could be uh, where you lose some listeners or not, but uh, I'm a Man United fan. Um, I'm from Manchester. Yeah. Uh, so, um, and I had a really interesting incident when I, I, I went to, um, I got invited to go down to Burnley Football Club uh, and I met with all the players and and it, and it was great. You know, and it, you know, you, you get the signatures, you get the memorabilia and, and the players are all really nice. Um and they all signed. Uh, they all signed a, a ball for me, and I took it away. And literally, by the time I got home, I was like, "I don't want it. It's not oh. a Man United football, and it's not Man United, and it's not good enough for me." Yeah. Uh, and, and literally, and my brother, my older brother, was uh, beside himself because he was like, "What are you doing? <laughs> like, you have no idea what, 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 who you've met in terms of there was some ex England internationals and." Uh, and so forth within the club at the time. So you talked about how in your early life you wanted to be a football player. Do you think that's? Do you think you changed between picking being a football player and turning into a coach because you felt as though you're not good enough, or was it because there was barriers back then that you know just stopped you from developing? I guess. Well, I think um, I think everyone thinks they're good enough, don't they? I yeah. Think, I don't think anyone uh, sets out thinking that they're not very good. There was a couple of combinations for me in. At the time, I probably didn't realise, but the main driver for me not to pursue, uh, to become a uh, a football player or, or, or kind of give up on that dream was, looking back now, you'd probably say there, there wasn't the infrastructure. I didn't know the process. I didn't know what it took, the pathway, the route uh, to take as a player. And I had a very big cultural influence, obviously, from my parents. 
uh, coming from an Asian background, they, they obviously were very keen for me not to kind of pursue a footballing <laughs> career. It was very much, uh, you know, become a doctor, become a, a lawyer, become, an you know, an academic, academic of some sort. Yeah. So they never encouraged me. They never encouraged me to, to you know, go and join the fo- local football team, go and try, you know, and, and pursue that as, as an option. So there was a couple of factors there that, that really, you know, by the time I probably realised that um, actually I should have perhaps gone down a, a certain path to be, try and become a player, mm-hmm. I was too old. I was I was 18, it was 17, 18, I was in college. So I kind of missed, I'd missed the boat very much. Yeah. So, and, and he, although that's still quite a very young age, uh, it's a realisation that unless you're told or, or you're guided from a, from an early age, as young as four or five years old, that actually here's a route into just playing football for a local team or at a grassroots level, that you can quite quickly miss miss your opportunity. So I'd like to say I was brilliant and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, if I'd made it, then, then absolutely. But um, it's only afterwards that I probably realised that some of those things were missing from my upbringing and, and obviously the environment that, that I was in. At the time, I probably didn't know that because I wasn't, uh, I, I was a young kid, probably finding his place in society more than anything, not not really thinking, oh, I should be, why is this not happening? Or why, why, why am I not getting involved there? Because I didn't know, I didn't know about those, those avenues. I mean, like with institutions and the media, they have like a massive power and authority in um, shaping our understandings. Do you feel as though there's a certain level of responsibility for them to counter like negative attitudes and negative perceptions on Asians? Because there's a myth out there that Asians are frail and weak and that's why they're not good enough to make it in sport. So do you feel as though there's a responsibility on our you know, newspapers, news outlets to shape a more egalitarian and more equal understanding of Asians and diversity in general? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been topic of conversation across a number of platforms, uh, how the media operates, how our news outlets report on um, on incidences, world events, whatever that might be, and, and the perceptions they build around, like you say, whether it's Asian people or or people from the black community, Chinese community, etc. Um, it's how those views are expressed and, and reported back and you'd like to think from a news media outlet or, or a big media corporation that it's done in the most equitable way but um, as I say that that's that's probably a, you know a bigger uh, challenge for for us as, as kind of a, a country and, and certainly you know from a government perspective you know it's it's how do you put things in place to, to help um, kind of keep control of that because equally we also have obviously a freedom of information and, and speech and and all all that as well so it's about it's always a balancing act but it's about how we ensure there's that kind of uh, filter put on to you know in place so that we're not imparting biased views onto people and forming them opinions um yeah it's much bigger than than me i'm afraid on that one so you're obviously an inclusion manager at efl what does inclusion look like? What does it mean to have inclusion in football? To put simply, it's when we talk about inclusion, it, it's thinking about, and it's thinking probably differently about how and all the ways we can include everybody. Mm. 
and that's very broad and, that, and, that, and that's such a massive piece. But um, to apply it in terms of what I do in, in my role is to really work with our clubs and work with us as an organisation along with the other uh, governing bodies, so the FA, the Premier League, the League Managers Association and the uh, PFA is to... Um, you know, really look at football as a whole. How do we encourage more inclusion and be more inclusive, include different people and, and obviously all from different backgrounds, but equally working with our clubs and their business operations, you know, how can they become more inclusive right the way from the senior boards, chief exec levels um, within clubs through their match day operations, their general operations, um, looking at obviously their academies, looking at uh, their community trust as well as the, the casual side of the uh, staff of the game as well. Um, and it's really about good uh, and effective kind of business solutions for them so, so they become more equitable um, making sure that obviously if there are policies or procedures in place they are kind of compliant with UK legislation and what we're talking around there but equally they don't um, or prohibit obviously any forms of discrimination um, and then obviously a, a big part of my role is is to the offer the kind of learning and development, the education and training uh, to those clubs as well. Why is it important? Why do we do this? And really understand and help them understand why we do it from a, as I say, that legal business case uh, perspective and a moral moral case as well. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining this conversation. It was really interesting. And yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you so much to Anil Javid for bringing us an insight into this issue. So the other day, I popped down to an event held by the FA, the governing body for football. They said they're working to embed Asian inclusion across the FA and across grassroots football, as well as raise awareness of pathways into football for Asian communities by creating more engagement and communication between the FA and Asian communities. Long story short, the FA sees as a priority as much as we do. It means we can finally be optimistic for our next batch of Asian young players. So as you just heard, I did the interview with Anil. Opayemi edited the audio. She tells us about how she felt throughout the experience. It was definitely a challenge trying to figure out which parts of the podcast to cut out because the interview itself was so interesting. And also getting used to the software that will provide it to the podcast definitely highlighted some things I need to work on. I really enjoyed the protest. It was really satisfying once it had been completed. The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS. The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS. You're listening to Youth Rising by NCS. All right, let's talk loneliness. Like real talk. A lot of our lives are spent alone, whether that's going and coming back from school or watching Netflix Or like, you know when you and your friends just can't arrange to meet up and you're your only company? It gets like that sometimes, you know? But it's when this cycle happens over and over again, you know, this absence of real human interaction, meaningful interaction, that's when we can become lonely. As much as we throw stigmas such as you're a loner, you low life, loneliness is something that has, is, or will be experienced by all of us, at least at some points in our lives. And it's all that stigma, as well as a self-realization of, hang on a minute, I actually don't have any friends. Or, you know, when you think, who on earth is actually there to support me? That it takes a toll on our mental health. Loneliness and mental health are intertwined. And that's what our reporter Eva explored. 
She carried out two interviews, the first with the founder of Social Society, Tony Finnemore, and the second with Baroness Barron, the Minister for Civil Society and DCMS. Have a listen. Hey, it's Eva, and I'm here in Hove to chat to Tony Finnemore from the Social Society about loneliness today. How are you, Tony? I'm very well. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Good. So, can you tell us a little bit about the Social Society? Absolutely, yes. So, we are a community of individuals that give back to charity, and we run events locally to reduce isolation and loneliness and connect people. And we're all really about switching up the charitable giving model and supporting charities in a way that's unique and responsive to their needs, as well as creating community. What events do you run as a group? So they vary. We, we run an end of year festival, which we had in October called the Big Session, which was a fantastic day. We do um, live music pop-ups on the beach. We run monthly events just in the pub for people to come and have a drink with sort of no expectations, no pressures um, and a whole heap of things, really. They range from creative workshops to yeah, live music events and get togethers. Have you found that the social society has had, what what effect has it had on the local community and has it had a wider effect? It's been great for people connecting with others and with people that they might not, not necessarily have met with and creating friendships. We've had two weddings so far, which is interesting, two marriages, yeah, in a short period of time, which is fabulous for the group. Um, so yeah, it's had a really, it's had a really good impact locally um, and as we're growing, people are becoming more and more aware of us and we're just creating a safe space for people to come together to connect um, and you know reduce like I say reduce that isolation and loneliness locally and what types of people do you find come to your events with your target audience the membership is slightly different the paid membership is slightly different to what who we see in the community but it's really really broad so like I mentioned earlier we'll, we'll get young people we'll get students come along um, or people that you know studying PhDs and then we'll, we'll get elderly people come along that just want to sit and chat and meet other people um, over a pint of ale so there's no real it's very interesting but there is no real age group or gender or it's we can pull from anything from 32 people to 85 and there's such a range of people which I think is great yeah and I guess it just goes to show that loneliness affects all ages absolutely yeah it really does like people do associate loneliness with the elderly community um, but it's so much it's so much more than that so many more people that are isolated and what more do you think needs to be done by just the local community to help combat loneliness? I think an increased awareness um, of people out there um, and again, not just being elderly. I think advice, I would kind of say just reach out to people, be kind, smile at people, you know, look out for people that are potentially vulnerable in your area, in your street. Is it neighbours? Is it people that don't necessarily have a support network around them? Just engage, be more aware um, and just, yeah, just increase awareness, really. Yeah, definitely. What advice would you give to any listeners who are feeling alone? Whilst it's hard for some people to do, I would say reach out, reach out and connect with people, anyone, you know, whether it's someone in a coffee shop, go and try and sort of get that interaction and that engagement from people. Um, random acts of kindness, call on your neighbours, just, just engage and connect um, and, and don't sit there in silence. And, and I know that that's hard, harder um, and easier said than done, sorry, but yeah, to reach out. 
and connect. Were you aware that there was a Minister of Loneliness? I was. I you was. Were. Yeah. I wasn't aware. I had no idea that there was Lots of such a role. Yeah. yeah. What do you think of that, that we need a Minister of Loneliness? I think it's good and bad in equal measures. I think it's great because we have somebody that's that's, that's there that's fighting for that cause, raising that awareness um, and trying to help cities and people and individuals and businesses tackle the issue head on because it is a huge issue nationally now. Um, but really sad, the fact that we need that yeah. really, and that we can't um, connect and, and, and as communities and tackle that issue ourselves. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so equal measures, good and bad. Yeah. If you had anything you'd like to raise with the Minister of Loneliness, what would you do? I'm putting you on the spot. I'd be interested to see um, her thoughts you know and, and listen to her thoughts when you do speak to her on isolation and loneliness and how she plans um, on tackling that as a not only within local communities but nationally as well because it is a really huge issue as we, we talked about earlier is there anything else you'd like to let people know about the social society just that we're an amazing group of people lovely <laughs> no that's biased um just that yeah we, we we're ultimately we're trying to revolutionize the sort of charitable giving model in the way that we support charities and connect communities um so yeah if you want to sort of follow us you know follow our journey follow our movement then get on board look at us on socials and, and yeah follow the journey yeah that's exciting thank you thank you for talking with me today no problem thanks it's for been, having me yeah really interesting and good luck with all of the exciting events you've got coming up Thank you. Cheers. Thanks. No worries. The Youth Rising Podcast by NCS. Hey, it's Eva here. After chatting to Tony Finnamore from the Social Society about what she's doing in her local community to combat loneliness, I wanted to find out what's being done to tackle this problem on a national scale. So I've come down to Westminster to chat with Baroness Diana Barron, who is our Minister for Loneliness. So let's find out more. Hi there, it's Eva. Today I'm talking to Baroness Barron about loneliness and we are on Parliament Street. Thank you for talking with me today. How are you? I'm very well. It's a great pleasure. Lovely to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So a lot of people won't actually be aware that there is a Minister of Loneliness. Can you describe your role? So I think my role is to try and raise awareness of loneliness as an issue uh, and then work with colleagues across government to reduce it. What have been your initiatives and your actions? What actions have you taken to target loneliness so far? So I haven't been in this role for that long. And as you know, um, Parliament's been a little bit interrupted the second half of <laughs> uh, last year. So um, I've inherited some great stuff from previous colleagues. And I think one of the big focuses has been on raising awareness of loneliness and trying to reduce the stigma associated with it. So colleagues have been involved with partners and charities across the country um, in talking about loneliness in a campaign called Let's Talk Loneliness, uh, inspired, as I'm sure you know, originally by the work of Jo Cox, who was so tragically killed, but she really shone a light on this first. And then it's been picked up 
since then. Um, the thing that I guess I have specifically done is try to get funding for the what you might call micro groups, so small little local groups who are doing all sorts of different activities that people might enjoy from a reading group to a baking group to a walking group, because I think we've tried to take this from two sides. One is reducing the stigma, and that's when we talk about loneliness, so that people know that it's not just them, that it happens to lots of people, in fact, most of us at some point in our lives. But the flip side is most of us don't want to go through a door which says this is a club for lonely people, but we might want to go through a door which says if you enjoy singing, walk through here. Would you say that loneliness and mental health are interlinked? Well, I don't think for everybody, uh, but I think for some people, uh, loneliness might be a precursor to mental health, more serious mental health problems, but equally, it can be a result of having mental health mm. problems. It could be both sides of it. On a national scale, what are the impacts of loneliness? Well, they're huge. I mean, some of the research that's been done suggests that the public health impacts are as serious as smoking or obesity. So I always think that's quite hard to get one's head around. It's a kind of reason to take it very seriously. But I think then when you break it down to what can we do about it, I think one of the great things about loneliness is that each one of us individually can do something today you know we might spot somebody who looks a bit lonely or we might feel a bit lonely ourselves and there is something one can do about it so the big numbers are important but that sometimes that can be a bit daunting mm. and actually is accessible as a problem yeah would you say that there's a specific group of people or age range because we often associate loneliness with the elderly. But what have you found in your role? Have you found it's fairly spread across all ages? What I found in my role is that by talking about loneliness, I get more emails, more letters, more contacts from every age group than on any other part of my brief as a minister. So that's quite interesting just in and of itself, it seems to really touch a chord with people. The official data suggests that more young people uh, say that they're lonely than any other age group. So almost 40% of young people say that they're lonely. I, I think, and you know, you can tell me I'm wrong about this, but I think there's certain points in one's life when loneliness can be very acute. So for example, for people who move from full-time employment to retirement, that can be a very difficult transition, but equally having a child can mean that you go from being surrounded by, you know, lots of people to to not and finding it very difficult to get out of the house. I think there's also, you know, what we might think of as sort of traditional loneliness, literally not seeing somebody from one week's end to the next, but also that feeling of not belonging, not fitting in, which, again, tell me if you disagree with me, but I think might be a bit more associated with uh, being a young person, mm. um, particularly with social media and all the sort of needing to look a particular way and have a zillion likes and all of that can just feed that sense of not belonging. Yeah. And um, 
what more needs to be done to help combat loneliness? Oh, well, that's a huge um, question. So I think we've talked quite a lot about the sort of local organic stuff and, and the role of government there, I think, is obviously to help where we can, but definitely not to take any of the glory for it. What we want is to kind of amplify what's happening um, locally. I think the others, there is some much longer term strategic stuff that only government can do. So when we think about how we design our high street, how we design accommodation for people. So you'll know that particularly in countries like Holland and Switzerland, they're very good, I think, at designing accommodation, for example, for the elderly or people with learning disabilities to be much more integrated into the community, whereas sometimes we will have developments that are quite on the edge of a community for those groups who are already naturally more isolated and lonely. So thinking about how we do our town planning. Um, And then the other big push that's happening nationally here is the whole advent of what's called social prescribing so that if somebody goes to see their GP worried about maybe anxiety or lower level depression or loneliness that rather than being prescribed medication they might be prescribed you know if they enjoy swimming they might be encouraged to join a swimming group or um, one of the other things we've talked about so that is being rolled out nationally and that will be really interesting to see how that works. Yeah, I agree. I think those both sound like really important, big things that can really help society. My last question today is, what advice would you give to any listeners who are feeling alone? Well, I think just to realise that you're absolutely not the only person who's feeling alone and not in any way to judge yourself for feeling lonely. It's completely natural reaction to life and the challenges life might present but that if you feel it's not sort of passing in a natural way either to reach out and try and get involved in something maybe volunteering or maybe join a group or something that you think is fun and where you can build connections with people great thank you for talking with me today it's been incredibly interesting Um, And yeah, good luck with all of the upcoming schemes. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck with all you're doing. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much to Tony Finnemore and Baroness Barron for contributing to this interview. And a special thank you to Eva, our reporter. Now, I think it's important that we all realise that loneliness is more complex than just being alone. From personal experience, I've been in so many friendship groups or social settings when, yes, I've had company, but I saw them as more acquaintances or colleagues. I had people around me, but yet I felt a sense of emptiness, a feeling of like not fitting in with the crowd. It's important, I think, that we reflect ourselves, get to know ourselves more and learn to love ourselves. I'm the biggest fan of me time. And it's okay to be alone, but if it's making you feel sad or empty, start building relationships with people. You know, be proactive and seek opportunities to start making friends. Go to your local youth centre or go to extracurricular events and start talking to people. I think that helps. So as you heard, Eva did those two interviews. She chats about her experience and the challenges she encountered. I found the interview really interesting. Um, I really enjoyed interviewing Tony as I think she's got amazing ideas about how we can all prioritise interacting and socialising with other people. 
and just integrating our communities more. She's also someone that works um, very close to home. She operates um, in Brighton and a lot of the events are run in Brighton. And as a Brighton person, it's great to see that there are people out there who are actually working to um, make my own local community better. Um, I think also she's a great role model for other people that want to get their communities more integrated. Thank you so much for joining us for Youth Rising. Next week, we're going to be discussing women in sport and veganism. If you've been inspired by stories in this podcast, visit wearencs.com to find out how you can get involved. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. Youth Rising. By NCS.